ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The weekend is upon us and for many Australians that means one thing, lots of sport. Whether you're a parent, an aunt or a grandparent, many of us sit on the sidelines of the basketball courts, the bleachers at the pool or maybe the shoreline at surf club cheering the kids on. It's brilliant seeing all those kids get amongst it. But there's no doubt kids sport is an expensive endeavour. In fact, last year, the Australian Sports Commission found Australians spent $3.9 billion on children's organised sport outside of school. Today in Australia Wide, why sporting teams in the bush are starting to feel the pinch as families tighten their belts and forfeit expensive sporting activities. I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wajok Country, Perth. But first, Australian Border Force have rushed to the small, remote Indigenous community of Beagle Bay in WA's north to investigate the arrival of 30 men on a boat. The men have told locals they're from Pakistan. Our reporter, Vanessa Mills, spoke to local shop owner Adrian about his interaction with the men this morning after they arrived on the beach. We're hanging out of the park across from the shop. do know that they do have services on their way out now. What kind of condition did they look like? How good, phys- to be honest. Yeah, but well-dressed. Pretty fit. Wow, what were they wearing then if they were well-dressed? Uh, jeans, shirts, definitely like smart casual. <laughs> what did you or your staff have to give them? Oh, we just provided some water. And no doubt people are um, yeah, a little bit weirded out by this. Uh, any thoughts or reactions that you're seeing from people in the street? Oh, look, it's, um, it's created a bit of a fuss out the front of the shop. We do have a bit of a crowd gathered <laughs> watching I um, bet. Because it is a small community, so, you know, even one person in here that's not usually here is quite noticeable. Beagle Bay resident Adrian speaking to Vanessa Mills and the Australian Border Force is investigating their arrival. Rural roads have always been more dangerous than urban ones. The statistics from 2022 show that the death rate per 100,000 of populations five times greater on rural roads than in met- on metropolitan roads. That's Professor Narelle Hayworth from the Centre for Accident Research and Road Safety at the Queensland University of Technology. She's also the Vice President at the Australasian College of Road Safety. Death rates on regional and rural networks is getting worse, not better. And this is despite the fact that the cars we travel in are safer with lots of features like airbags and lane-assisted technology. Professor Hayworth says one of the reasons for this is the post-COVID move to the country, which means that there are many more people on the roads and the network is often not up to the challenge. She spoke to me a little earlier. I think at some stage we have to realise that we need to have a mixture of bringing the standards of the roads up to a level where it's safe for us to travel at higher speeds and also then realising that where we can't do that, the only way of preventing death and reducing serious injury is actually to not be travelling as fast. So what would you say is a reasonable speed for most rural networks? For a really good rural network, you know, where there's good protection to prevent head-on crashes or crashes into trees and so on, then 100, 110 is quite plausible. But realistically, most of our rural network is not up to that standard the likelihood of death and serious injury is much lower if we're travelling at 80 kilometres per hour 
rather than 100. The position we've basically come to for a lot of agencies across Australia, including the Australasian College of Road Safety, is that we're saying that perhaps the default, the standard rural speed limit should be 80 kilometres per hour. It can be higher if you show that that road is safer at a higher speed. But realistically, most of our roads aren't able to protect us at the, at the higher speeds. That's quite a thing to say. I'd imagine drivers would balk at the idea of, of 80 k's an hour. Yeah, look, and I think that's the case. But it's a matter of you know, how much are we valuing our time or how much we're valuing our lives. Also, it's hard for us to really comprehend at an individual level what differences like changing a speed limit will have at the whole population level or the, for the whole of society. And so I think it's, it's a challenge to try and to actually be able to accept that these rules of physics do actually apply. People listening would be thinking, if I had to drop my speed limit to 80 k's an hour, that drive's going to take me longer. I will be more tired. Therefore, that's a risk factor for me. What do you say to that? That's a point that's been brought up a number of times in the past. But what we find when we actually do the, the calculations is that the speed that the additional time required for travelling at a slower speed isn't as much as we think we think it is. Because very often we get caught behind other vehicles or the curvature of the road means that we can't be travelling at the at the speed limit anyway. And so a lot of these calculations have been done and they've found um, in a number of places in Australia and been found that Yes, there is an additional time, but it actually isn't as much as, as people think. If you drill into it, if you have a car crash at 80 k's an hour as opposed to a car crash at 100 or 110, what's the difference in the outcome generally? Well, basically, the rule that's been developed from analysis of crashes in many parts of the world is that there's actually a four times multiplier for the risk of death in a crash. So if your speed goes up by 1%, the risk of death in the crash goes up by 4%. It's quite substantial and that's why some relatively small decreases in mean speed can have quite a significant um, effect on the risk of fatality. Cars have got very sophisticated, the type of safety, cushioning, all of the different things that are triggered in a car when you have a car crash. Does that not make up for the speed? No, not really. And I think we also have to realise that while there are some cars out there that we can buy now that have high levels of safety in terms of preventing us from getting into a crash and then also protecting us if we do, most people can't afford them, particularly um, people who are struggling out in rural and regional areas. Are you going to be able to afford to replace your car with the highest technology every five years or whatever? No. Do you see that as a big factor? We know from a lot of research that people's risk of injury is related to their socioeconomic status. We know that poorer people are more likely to die in crashes. And that's not just in rural and regional areas. But I think it's exacerbated in rural and regional areas because people are just travelling further. And they're travelling further on roads that are less well-maintained and at higher speeds. So you're suggesting that 80 k's an hour would be a reasonable, would be a better standard to have on regional roads that have not been equipped for greater speeds than that. When you suggest this, when you lobby for this, how does it go down? Look, 
there's always a fear of losing votes in rural and regional Australia. It's not popular. And I think one of our challenges is to better communicate why it is safer at lower speeds, that you do have more time to react, that you do have more time in which to reduce, for the braking to reduce the impact speed, that you have more control to be able to avoid collisions and so on. Are you worried about the state of Australian roads with what we see as a change in climate and the weather that comes with it? It's certainly a a major issue. We can see that there's a whole range of different effects of natural disasters. So we know that if we're getting heavy rain, people's visibility is reduced, the traction, it's taking longer to stop. It's affecting the safety of driving during those events and those events being more common then it's actually damaging the roads themselves. So then we've got the issue of how putting the money in to fix it. And traditionally, our funding mechanisms have have basically provided money to reinstate the road to what it used to be before. It would be really good if we spent a little bit extra and at the same time put in some of the safety features that that road didn't have. How do we compare to other parts of the world like and other parts of the world where you can travel faster? Look, I think most other parts of the world have many more people per per kilometre of land than we have. I mean, if you look at Germany, its population is much larger than Australia. You know, its area is much smaller. Well, it's bigger than Tasmania, (laughs) but you know what I mean. So other countries can afford higher quality roads and can build them. And then they can have higher speed limits. I'm not against high speeds. I only want high speeds in the situation where the road environment is going to be safe. How long have you been looking at road safety out of interest? More than 35 years. So 35 Um, years of of informing yourself about this and this is the conclusion you've come to, that 80 k's an hour on most regional roads is probably a better prospect for safety. Yeah, it's the one we can afford. We could improve the roads, we could improve the the vehicles and so on. That's not going to be able to happen, not in any to the extent that we need in the time frame that we need. Professor Narelle Hayward, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks very much, Sinead. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. The rising cost of living is making it tough for many families in Australia. Parents are being forced to choose between their children playing sport and putting food on the table as the increased cost of everything puts a squeeze on household budgets. In many parts of regional Australia, this financial pressure is having a trickle-down effect on sporting clubs. As Aaron Kelly reports from Rockhampton, some community sporting clubs are on the brink of collapse. For single mum Casey McLaughlin and her three sports-mad children, sport is more than Saturday morning fun. It is a way of life. Every weekend, the family packs up the car in central Queensland and heads around the country for everything from softball to rugby league to athletics. While the rising costs in day-to-day life are making things tough, she's determined to not let it stop her children, 15-year-old Jackson and 11-year-old twins, Kobe and Paige, from being active. It is a hard choice, but 
sometimes you just got to stick to what you can afford. It's really hard because I'm a single mum as well. It's hard when you have the kids and they have the talent. You really want to do and let them go as far as they can, uh, which was always good because obviously there's a bit of an age gap between Jackson and the and Paige and Kobe. So it was all right when you have the one child going and making the national teams and all that sort of jazz. But when uh, having the three this year has been a, a real struggle. Everything's going up and the amount of travelling that you do, it's, it's it really is a killer. You know, you have the accommodation costs and obviously the levies and the uniforms and everything, but it's the, it's the travelling, you know, the 30,000 k's that you're putting in the car, getting the kids to and from things. For many parents in regional Australia, just like Casey, the growing costs of living is leaving them with a difficult dilemma. Whether they can afford the many costs associated with playing sport, this in turn pushing many sporting clubs to the brink of collapse. The Australian Sports Foundation's Patrick Walker says the cost of living is harming sporting families and grassroots clubs. It's a massive issue. We did a survey last year of 3,000 community clubs and really asking them about uh, the the challenges they're facing and two key things uh, came up. One was financial challenges and the other was pressure on volunteers. So we look at the the financial side first. Around over half clubs said they've seen participation decline uh, because of cost of living. In other words, parents or kids can't afford the rego fees to participate in sport. So that's over half of clubs are saying that that's an issue. And obviously, if we don't have the participation and the registrations, the clubs lose money, which means they're under financial pressure. So it's a bit of a vicious circle. The Glenmore Bulls Australian Football Club competes in Queensland's AFL Capricornia competition. President Sean Peckover says the club is always looking at innovative ways to assist parents of junior players coming through its ranks, including discounted fees and free registration for new players. It's very difficult if you've got a child that, that is active and you know is looking to play you know, more than one sport, and particularly if AFL is their second sport or their or their third sport on their list, and, and they're looking to just come along and, and play with some of their mates, and they mightn't commit to you know, the full 15 game season, or, or they're just looking to play um, when the teams are in town. So, <clears throat> as a club, we we really actively promote that we've got some discounts available for new players, and and for this season, we're actually having free registration for brand new players to AFL. That's Glenmore Bulls Australian Football Club President Sean Peckover finishing that story from Aaron Kelly. Let's head now to Queensland, to Lindemann Island. Now, this tropical getaway was once the darling of Queensland tropical island holidaymakers, and this was back in the 80s and 90s. The now dilapidated island, which is part of the Whitsundays, could reopen again next year after an injection of funds from the state government. Hannah Walsh has this story. Lindemann Island, (coughs) we started it. An amazing lifestyle, an amazing experience. It was absolutely the most fantastic place. It would have been one of the best places where there's nice all year round. Breathtaking beaches, the heart of the Great Barrier Reef and a swarm of staff who would meet you on a jetty and carry your bags. For many years, the heydays of several iconic Whitsunday Islands have seemed all but over. While there are still thriving resorts in the Whitsundays, some have turned to ruins, rotting away on otherwise picturesque islands. But the tide could be turning for one destination, Lindemann Island, with its Singaporean developer setting an ambitious target to have the resort operational again by mid-2025. The makeover of the whole hotel 
that includes uh, 220 rooms. There will be facilities like uh, all-day buffet restaurant and uh, specialty restaurant. There will also be facilities like uh, bars, swimming pool, and uh, wedding venue. Lindemann Island was once the darling of Queensland Tropical Island holidaymakers and was famed for being the first club made in Australia. But in 2011, it was pummeled by Cyclone Yazi and a year later shut down. Last year, it was bought by Singaporean company Wellsmart Group after plans for a $580 million six-star spa resort by its previous Chinese owner never came to fruition. And now the state government's helping the new owners build a 50-metre jetty. Wellsmart director Tony Gia says construction on the jetty is expected to be finished by early 2025, with the resort opening a mere few months later. So most of the buildings are still in very good shape. So we are going to do the we are going to keep the existing facilities, but we'll be we'll be doing a full refurbishment. Explorers who have wandered through the abandoned resort are sceptical. Using existing infrastructure is even possible. But Tony Gia remains positive. So our internal budget will be around 40 to 50 million. I've just visited island about two weeks ago. So we've uh, completed our first mock-up room on the island with our builders. We are estimate the room will be around $350. 47-year-old Tammy Robinson came from New Zealand in the early 2000s to work on the island. That was when it was owned by Club Med, a French travel and tourism operator with resorts all over the world. They called it the Rock, affectionately, because, you know, it was so far from the mainland. Like, you've got um, two different kinds of staff. You've got your dues, which are your local staff, um, and they run the resort, basically, do all the background jobs, the maintenance and, you know, your kitchen hands and, and house cleaners and all that sort of stuff. And then you've got geos, which are from all over the world, and they come in and usually do about a six-month contract before they've moved on to another resort and they do everything with the guests. So they eat with the guests and they party with the guests and they entertain the guests, play sports with the guests, like they're just with the guests all the time. People sort of came more for the experience as well. Like they knew they weren't coming to Australia five-star resort. It was, they were coming to um, have a good time, really. The way it was back when I was there was, um, you know, the Heyman did that job. It was Heyman and Daydream and all of those. If, they, if somebody wanted a market, they could go to those places. Whereas Lindemann was the family resort and the fun resort. I'm sure it'll be amazing, but it'll just be like any of the other resorts now. Derelict and deserted islands continue to capture attention, with a Queensland Parliament Committee report into island resorts discussed briefly in sittings this week. The report was tabled last year and made 18 recommendations, like the government essentially having power to cancel tourism leases, where leasees aren't pulling through on promises. But these aren't yet enforced. The actual inquiry investigated 29 resorts on 25 islands, nearly half of which are in the Mackay and Whitsunday regions. Other problem islands include Brampton, where the owner, petrol company United Petroleum, have stalled on a development application for more than a decade. Further north, South Mole has been listed for sale since last year. Empty and neglected buildings are still on both islands. It's sad. It's so sad to see it in the state that it's in now. Hannah Walsh reporting there. Just over a year ago, the only veterinary clinic in Longreach in Queensland was set to close. Farmers and pet owners faced a difficult and costly future because the nearest practice was nearly 400 kilometres away. 
To keep the doors open, a local farming family bought it, a diversification move that their friends told them to run a mile from. Landline's Pip Courtney has this story. Last year, at a local cricket match, in a comp he helped revive, the owner of Longreach's only vet clinic asked James if he and his wife Manny would buy it to save it from closing. I said, well, don't be silly, that's crazy. And then a couple of months later, it was getting a bit dry here and we thought, well, we might just have a look at it. Just a vital business for the region, so it was important to try and keep it going. Friends were shocked they'd consider buying it, given the chronic shortage of rural vets, the profession's high suicide rate and the couple's lack of experience. I think they were probably right in thinking that, but um, I was up for a challenge. Their first year has been a whirlwind. Manny quit her relief teaching job to run the practice and they had two weeks to recruit vet staff. And it really was the steepest learning curve ever. So to think that it was my second career, I wasn't looking for. (laughs) And then uh, I had to learn very quickly. But um, it was great. It was a challenge and it wasn't easy. Dr Daniel Stanky is their locum after spending a year here as a vet previously. The next clinic is Charleville, Hewingdon. If it did close, it would put so many people out and so put so many people in really bad situations if, it, if there was no clinic here. You know, a vet bill is expensive enough without having a 600-kilometre round trip. Some people perhaps wouldn't bother with the immunisations or the checkups. And it also means if your animal had an accident, there's no one to help. There's no royal flying dog service. They need it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Considering the amount of animals that we've got, would have been very difficult because we love our animals. The clinic's patients are big and small, adored family members, work and sport partners. You can just be in the clinic all day looking at cat and dogs. And other days you can like, have to go look at a horse with a wound. You do have a lot of routine stuff like prick testing, bull testing, but then that's broken up by emergencies. And how swollen was that leg when you first found it? Probably a quarter of the size yesterday yeah. to what it is today. The region's many horse owners are relieved the clinic didn't close. Time is of the essence when horses injure themselves or become ill. They never seem to do these things in halves, so having a vet close by is absolutely critical. Dutton lost a fight with a fence. Too lame to travel, a vet was there within hours. You can't ask for more than that. If I get sick, I don't think I can get into a doctor that quick. Dr Stanky's former clients are now his bosses. And uh, he was telling me how much he's changed it and vamped it up and upgraded everything. So, yeah, I was keen to come back just to have a look and, yeah, see how it's going and help James out, pretty much. Good on him, 100% good on him. Because it's obviously not that common for non-veterinarians to buy practices anyway. That's going to be full on, but he, someone needed to do it. Getting vets to move to Longreach has been difficult. Flexible hours and housing has helped make the remote town more attractive, but the big incentive has been salary. Did you have to pay more? Absolutely, yeah. I think vets are underpaid. Like, if you look at them, uh, you know, compared to the medical fraternity, I think they are just undervalued, underpaid, and I think they're extraordinary. We pay well. We have to. After spending a week with one of the vets, who had 12 after-hours calls, 
James realised how critical supporting vets was. Absolutely exhausted. We realised fairly quickly that our role was to protect the vets and the staff from burnout. Did you feel like it was a real responsibility to give those vets a good work-life balance and to preserve and protect their mental health? Oh, definitely, yeah, because I think probably outside the vet profession, probably people aren't quite aware of how high that pressure is and why the suicide rate is as high as it is. Dr Max Woods is a FIFA. Vet. He flies in Monday, flies out Friday. What will keep Dr Woods in Longreach longer is this. The practice's stables are being turned into an equine reproduction centre. There's plenty of horse flesh up here, expensive horse flesh and high quality, high genetic horse flesh. So if you have the right facilities, the right staffing, yeah, definitely there would be opportunity for it. There wasn't a horse in sight at Isis Downs, owned by CPC, one of the country's largest privately owned cattle producers. Dr Woods fertility tested 400 bulls in four days. For station manager Andrew Cochran, vets aren't just for emergencies. He's in touch weekly. They're an integral part of our production cycle throughout the year. Expanding services is James's mantra. So when he heard the nearest dog groomer was half a day's drive away, he bought a grooming trailer. It was booked out two days later. His best news to start the year, though, is a couple, both vets, arrived this month. It means the practice can cover more ground than ever. Yeah, it's quite exciting, especially with the pressures of carbon and efficiencies coming into the beef industry. We'd love to be able to support large corporates or, or family businesses with, with their amazing vets. Landline's Pip Courtney reporting there. And you can see Pip's story with James and Manny Walker and their vet team on Landline on Sunday at 12.30 or anytime you like on iView. And that is Australia Wide for this week. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a great weekend. Cheerio. ABC Listen.